Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, March 9th, 2011. Well, according to my calendar, um, we've got six days before Rob Bell's book hits. And, you know, like I've promised you in previous installments of Fighting for the Faith, I'm pretty sure that we're going to have the whole hell thing... um, totally locked down. Yeah, and unless Rob Bell's got some new revelation from God that's got to be added to the Bible, there's pretty much nothing he's going to be able to add to this conversation, except for maybe a few things that we're going to have to correct. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we like to compare what people are saying in God's name to, well, God's Word. Yeah, because I've never met God. I mean, have you have you met him? I mean, yeah, probably not. So uh, we're kind of dependent upon what he's revealed about himself in his word to really know anything about him. And when people just start opining and making up ideas and thinking that the ideas they've come up with somehow have merit uh, on the same level as or maybe even above what God has revealed about himself in his word, well, then we've got some problems and we've got to do some cleanup work. So, uh, you know, I understand the whole Rob Bell thing is still swirling. Yes, swirling like a toilet bowl. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, I thought I would add just one more fantastic lecture. Uh, you know, today we're going to do our light edition of Fighting for the Faith today. And uh, what we're going to be listening to is a, a lecture uh, by Dr. J.I. Packer. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you can't beat Dr. Packer. And the name of it is Hell. Annihilation and Human Destiny. Hell, Annihilation, and Human Destiny. And I'm sure that it will significantly add to your proper understanding of hell and what it is, what it isn't, and uh, why Annihilationism, well, uh, well, it comes up short. So um, without any uh, further ado, uh, here is J.I. Packer. It's a very great pleasure to stand here this evening and be addressing you. But frankly, I'm almost afraid to do so because the chairman has preached the introduction so powerfully (laughs) that I'm afraid that anything I say will now come as anticlimax. But there it is. I'm uh, slated to give you this lecture and give it. I will. And may God bless it. It is a joy, as I said, to be talking to my friends, and I hope I may call you that, 
in the Evangelical Movement of Wales, a body with which I've had links from the very start, and for which I have prayed, and whose fortunes I have sought to follow over the years. And it isn't just that I've had links on the personal level with the Evangelical Movement, and those who have given their time, their energy, their lives, really, to furthering the cause of the gospel through the evangelical movement, I would like to say, before I go any further, that I do, as a matter of fact, owe a great deal in my own personal pilgrimage with the Lord to what I've received from my Welsh friends. And in saying that, I'm not only referring to the fact that my wife is a Welsh girl, though... Uh, if your wife isn't a means of grace to you, sir, I am sorry for you. My wife has been a means of grace to me. But uh, I'm thinking of people like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was mentioned, early, uh, mentioned by the chairman, and uh, Elwyn Davis, whom I'm sure you all of you know, a very dear friend. And I wonder how many of you of my generation this would have to be, uh, heard of and actually knew John Thomas Sandfield, great man, taken from us very early when we still needed him. The Lord knows whom he wants in heaven and when he wants them, but uh, oh, were we not, weren't we sorry to lose John Thomas Sandfield? And you ask me what I gained from these friends of mine and others whom I might mention, and I can answer that very simply. In the evangelical tradition of Wales, there is a marvelously strong, high, rich, deep sense of the glory of God. His greatness, his holiness, his majesty, his praiseworthiness. I tell you, friends, I never learned that in England, as I learned it from my friends in Wales, and from the Welsh evangelical movement and the movement in the universities in which I was, with which I was privileged to join many years ago now. But the touch of these things on one's spirit remains. And coming, coming back to Wales, as I do this evening, to speak once more to a Welsh congregation, I do find myself deeply moved by the memory of what Wales has given me in the past. If perhaps, in what I say this evening, I can give something back to Wales, well, I shall thank God for that. Now, we are biting on a bullet tonight. We're going to deal with a tense and painful subject. The chairman has announced it, and you knew what it was when you came. The problem of human destiny, which we're going to discuss in a present-day context, and I hope I shall not be found burking any issues. I intend to talk as honestly as I can. I shall speak straight and precisely about the issues that are involved. I cannot believe that all the things that I say will make pleasant hearing. I just hope that I shall be able to do it in a way which keeps the question of the glory of God and the truth of God before our minds so that I don't simply engender contention. I want you to have in your minds, as I start, the question, what has God said on this matter? 
And what are we to say in order to maintain his honor and his praise in these days? That's my question. And I hope that our hearts are united in embracing that question as the concern of us all as we go about our business. But let me introduce the subject like this. I teach at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada, and there, as in other colleges, from time to time we have fun. It would be a strange college where there never was any fun. And on April the 1st, 1990, one of the bits of fun which we all encountered was this. A spoof course program appeared in the mailbox of all of us faculty members. Our New Testament pundit, who writes on biblical interpretation, was down to lecture on how to prove anything from the Bible. The principal of the Baptist College, with whom we work, was to give instruction on what the Bible teaches about infant baptism. His colleague, whose speciality is family ministers, was slated for one course on how to conquer self-doubt through pretense and ostentation, and for another on motivating your children by guilt and fear. <laughs> My assignment was this, guilt without sex, an introduction to Puritan theology. <laughs> I thought that was rather bright. And our new professor of theology was given the theme, Overcoming Peace of Mind, the Doctrine of Eternal Punishment. Get it? I think many a true word is spoken in jest. And there, I think, was a true word spoken in jest. It certainly is true that to a normal person, the thought that folk one knows and cares for, not to mention oneself, might face a destiny that could be described as eternal punishment is going to be profoundly disturbing. It rudely disrupts the sort of peace of mind that uh, in the Western world we cultivate today. I mean, the sort of peace of mind that is gained by constantly telling yourself that there is nothing to worry about and... Uh, everything in the end will work out all right, which is what we do over and over and over again. This complacency is part of our culture. It's sniffed like glue in the air that we breathe. And it does, in fact, operate, I believe, as a deadening drug on the mind. And so we shouldn't be surprised when there's a kind of knee-jerk reaction um, when uh, we have it disturbed or challenged, we resent that and we say, no, 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 no. And so we dismiss the doctrine of eternal punishment, which is one of the things that disturbs our complacency. We dismiss it, as I said, as in all its forms, debased Christianity. No, we say, that can't be true. Whatever our foolish ancestors believed cannot be truth for today. We scoff at hellfire as a bad dream, the murky stamping ground of redneck fundamentalists in America, and perhaps old-fashioned Roman Catholics all around the world. But for ourselves, we write off the idea as a hangover from prim primitive ages, now long past. And when we meet someone who still believes in eternal punishment, we regard him as at least quaint and perhaps weird. We 
certainly are not inclined to take him seriously. We know, of course, that belief in eternal punishment has been part of the mainstream in Christian conviction from the very first. Maybe we know about Tertullian in the third century who said much about it. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th who also said much about it. Maybe we know about Jonathan Edwards and his famous sermon, which God used as a channel of revival in Enfield, Massachusetts. That's the sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And we know that uh, belief in eternal punishment bulked large in Victorian Christianity. We know that Spurgeon, for instance, affirmed it and elaborated it over and over again. But just as we wouldn't dream of aping the Victorians in other matters, so we acquit ourselves of any responsibility to go along with them in this. Hell is dead, we say, so back to peace of mind. I'm not accusing you, but I am saying that surely you recognize the mentality of which I'm speaking, and surely you have at least had to fight its infection of yourself. This is how society encourages us to approach our subject. Everything's going to be all right. Give up the bad dreams. Well, how are we to respond to this? I don't hold any special brief for Victorian Christianity or for Jonathan Edwards or for Thomas Aquinas or for Tertullian, but I do hold a brief for that to which they all appealed, namely the Christianity taught by our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. And my first task now must be to point out as forcefully as I can that Jesus and the apostles do not let us off the hook with regard to eternal punishment in the way that we so blithely let ourselves off it. Rather, they impale us on that hook and make us face the issue directly. You see, the doctrine of eternal punishment stems directly from Jesus. Yes, it does. And the apostolic teaching on the subject simply echoes what the founder of Christianity first said. And no Greek mythmaker or Jewish fantasist ever spoke of eternal punishment with such weight and gravity as Jesus did. As W.G.T. Shedd affirmed in a landmark statement a century ago, I wonder if you know his name, he was a very distinguished American theologian back in the 1880s and 1890s. As he affirmed, and I quote him now, the strongest support of the doctrine of endless punishment is the teaching of Christ, the Redeemer of men. Christ could not have warned men so frequently and earnestly as he did against the fire that never shall be quenched and the worm that dieth not, had he known that there is no future peril to fully correspond to them. Jesus Christ is the person who is responsible for the doctrine of eternal perdition. He is the being with whom all opponents of this theological tenet are in conflict. End of quote. Well, that's a strong statement, you'll agree. But the evidence warrants it, as we shall now see. Eternal punishment, start with, is Jesus' own phrase. We heard it in the vision of the sheep and the goats, the judgment, which was read to us as our opening scripture passage. 
In this passage, we see the Son of Man, now returned as king, separating these two classes of human, being from each, human beings from each other. For the goats, his word is, we've heard it, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I'm quoting verses 21 and, uh, sorry, verses 41 and 46 of Matthew 25. Now, eternal, in those three phrases, is the Greek word ionios, which means, as has often been pointed out, not endless, but rather pertaining to the age to come, as distinct, you see, from the order of things that now is. However, in the, uh, in the age to come, as uh, Jesus, Jesus and the Jews conceived it, there would be no end to anything. Therefore, Ionios does, as a matter of fact, imply the unending continuance of that to which it refers, unless something is said in the context to show the contrary, and here nothing is. Uh, on the contrary, in verse 46, Jesus' statement about the eternal life into which the sheep enter and the eternal punishment into which the goats go is clearly a conscious parallelism on his part. The word eternal naturally means the same thing in both phrases. So if eternal life is taken to be unending, as surely it must be, the only natural supposition is that eternal punishment is unending also. Eternal punishment then, as Jesus declares it, is departure into eternal fire. Of this fire, Jesus spoke often, using for it the word Gehenna. That's the Greek form of the Hebrew Gehinnom, which means the Valley of Hinnom. This was an area outside the wall of Jerusalem where children had once been offered as burnt sacrifices to the pagan god Molech. And it had become the city's incinerator area where the Jerusalem garbage and the discarded corpses of those who died without families to bury them were daily burned. In the Sermon on the Mount, which surely no one will doubt is in one sense at least the charter of Christianity, in the Sermon on the Mount, a great gospel sermon, we find Jesus saying to his own professed disciples that anyone calling his brother a fool, that's an index with malicious contempt, you see, in one's heart, will be, says Jesus, in danger of the fire of hell. That's literally the Gehenna of fire. That's what the Greek says. That's Matthew 5, verse 22, if you want to look the text. And then in Matthew 18, verse 9, he refers again to the Gehenna of fire as an equivalent of the eternal fire in the verse before. It's a passage that runs like this. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. But if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. That needs any comment from me. The verses speak for themselves. The teaching is surely very, very clear. 
Another version of this same bit of teaching, found in Mark's gospel this time, speaks of a person with two hands going into, and now I'm quoting Mark, well, I'm quoting Jesus in Mark, going into Gehenna, where the fire never goes out, and of a person with two eyes being, quote Jesus again, thrown into Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's Mark 9, 43 and 48. It's echoing imagery from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, right at the end of Isaiah's prophecy. It's a verse that speaks of the work, speaks of the worm and the the worm and the fire destroying corpses. Well, now Jesus is taking this gruesome imagery, gruesome indeed it is, and applying it to the fate of living souls. And that is the point we have to face. Jesus takes this imagery and applies it to the fate of living souls. But this isn't all. With these passages should be linked Jesus' teaching, Jesus' picture of the tares and the bad fish being finally taken out of the kingdom and thrown into the fiery furnace. The Greek phrase is the furnace of the fire. It's as explicit as can be. Uh, the place, it's the place, says Jesus, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We should note also the grim form of Jesus' call for courage as he sends out the twelve on mission. Don't be afraid, he says, of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body, in hell. In hell. Matthew, 12, Matthew 10, verse 28. Destroy, in that verse, is the Greek word apolumi. It's a regular word for wrecking and ruining something, as when you total a car, and so make it useless, you see, for its intended purpose. It doesn't mean annihilation. Never, never did in secular Greek and doesn't in the Bible either. It means that you make a thing totally unfit for, totally incapable of achieving the purpose for which it was made. And hell here is Gehenna, the, the word that I introduced you to a moment ago. And the one to be feared, of course, is not the devil, but the one whom Jesus called Father. He said it. We need to take it seriously. All right, we ask, what does it all add up to? Well, we may summarize it like this. Jesus speaks of a destiny of being in the fire. His phrase, uh, forgive it on my lips. He speaks of a destiny of being in the fire for all people everywhere whom he doesn't accept as his own. Yes, it is all people everywhere because in Matthew 25, verse 32, we're told that the sheep and the goats are between them all nations. He calls the fire Gehenna, and he describes it as Ionios, eternal, part of the abiding future of things, and as never going out. To enter or to be thrown into it, Jesus uses both those verbs, actually. To enter it or to be thrown into it brings unqualified distress, weeping and gnashing of teeth, a condition that Jesus elsewhere ascribes, we would note, to those banished at Judgment Day to what he calls the darkness outside. You remember that phrase as it appears in the King James, where it's a haunting phrase, the outer darkness, the darkness outside, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
It's clear that we're in the world of imagery here because the fire and the darkness are both picturing the same condition, a condition of painful and hopeless desolation. And equally clearly, what is being pictured is an unimaginative, unimaginably dreadful condition, one that it's worth any labor at any cost to avoid. And the one who says all this, let us remember again, is the incarnate Son of God, our divine Redeemer. Who, if anyone, should know what he's talking about and should therefore be heard as having authority when he deals with these things? And what about the apostles? Well, as I said a moment ago, they in their teaching, they simply follow where Jesus has led. They use their own vocabulary, but for substance, they do no more, just as they do no less than echo Jesus' words. Here's some sample passages. Here's Paul in Romans chapter 2, warning each impenitent person thus, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he's done. For those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. This is justice. And this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Uh, those are Paul's words, apart from my little intervention when I said, this is justice, which indeed is what Paul believes it to be. Otherwise, all the rest is Paul's own phrases, and they come between Romans 2, verse, verse 5 and verse 16. And that's Paul stating the principle and affirming the certainty of final judgment and ruin. More dramatically, more luridly, we might say. Paul also declares, and here we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Everlasting is ionios, a word with which we're now familiar. Destruction is olethros in the Greek. That's a noun from this verb apolumi, which signifies wrecking something. Olethros means a reduction to ruin, a phrase Paul uses in one or two other places, speaking of the destiny of those who are found Christless at the end. Jude's letter includes both Jesus' images for the state of final loss. Verse 7 says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. That's Jude 3. Then verse 13 of the little letter speaks of certain immoral folk in the church as, quote, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness King James translated better, actually, than the NIV at that point. King James says, the blackness of darkness, which is exactly what the Greek says. They are then wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness has been reserved forever. 
It's sometimes been suggested, as we shall see in a moment, that the eternal fire of which Jesus and the apostles speak is an image of immediate annihilation. But Jude's phrase, darkness, blackness of darkness, reserved forever, clearly indicates that Jude didn't intend his reference to the eternal fire to be taken in that way. The phrase in verse 13 is as explicit as can be. The blackness of darkness reserved forever. It all seems that that's what the apostle said. And so we might go on. <clears throat> There's more in, the New <clears throat> more in the New Testament than I've quoted. There's much, for instance, in Revelation. Uh, <clears throat> in Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11, we are told in the lurid imagery which the pictorial chapters of Revelation uh, indulge in. By the way, let, let me tell you this. Most people think that the letters to the seven churches are just an introduction to the visionary chapters, chapter 4 through 22 of Revelation, and that it's those visions which are the real meat of the book. I venture to put it to you <coughs> that that's backwards, that the real burden of the book of Revelation is the message of our Lord to the seven churches, and by parity of reasoning to all our churches, which you got in chapters 2 and 3, following the vision of Christ in glory in chapter 1. And then chapters 4 through 22 are a long visionary appendix intended to demonstrate that however tough times may be, as the anti-Christian forces battle God's people, there's no question who is on the victory side, namely those who endure, those who stand fast, those who overcome, to use the language of the letters, those for whom the Lord has reserved the crown of life. Uh, I'd like you to think about that. You may or may not agree with it. But in any case, in the visionary chapters, trenchant things are said about eternal destiny. And Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11 warns that anyone who worships the beast, quote, will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. All right, we're going to pause right there, and uh, we're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. Uh, Jesus is the guy who taught all about hell. It really rests on him. Him. Yeah, he was the big hellfire preacher. It's true. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join our crew. Joining our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio on a monthly basis. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, here is the balance of this lecture from J.I. Packer on hell, annihilationism, and I forget the real name of it, but you get what I'm saying. But, and human destiny, that's what it is. Yeah, here's J.I. Packer. Still the false prophets are thrown there to be tormented day and night forever and ever. That, again, is the phrase used. And then, climactically, verse 15 of Revelation 20 says, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And in the context of this build-up, and in the light of the explicit statement of 1411, it's surely very unnatural to suppose, as some do, that being thrown into the lake of fire means anything less than pain and grief without end, which, as we've already seen, is the natural meaning of Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching and Jude's teaching. Well, what are we to do with this? What we're to do with it, friends, I urge, is to take it seriously. Just as seriously as we take the Lord's words about repentance and about marriage and about all the different aspects of godliness on which he rings the changes in the Sermon on the Mount. I know that our culture will discourage us from taking it seriously. I beg that we learn to resist the blandishments of our culture at this point, as our Christian ancestors did. We in this late 20th century are very different from our Christian ancestors in, the, in simply in not taking this teaching seriously as they did. I'm not suggesting that we should embrace the teaching 
in a way which encourages us to gloat over the fate of anyone, any particular person or any group of persons for whom this awful destiny uh, is appointed. Gloating is not the way in which Jesus and the apostles uh, speak, of this, speak of these things or refer to these things. I put it to you that our attitude, rather, as we contemplate this teaching, should be one of what I call traumatic awe. What I find in the New Testament passages where these things are spoken of is two things together. A passionate gladness that justice will one day be done for God's glory, along with an equally passionate sadness that fellow human beings, no matter how perverse, will thereby be ruined. This traumatic awe is reflected, surely, in Jesus' tearful words over Jerusalem. He wept over the city, remember. He knew that it was slated for destruction. He knew that it deserved destruction, but he wept over it. And you find the same compassionate, uh, you find the same traumatic awe, I think, in his compassionate admonition to the women who walked with him to Calvary. Do you, do you remember? Daughters of Jerusalem, he said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. There's a passage in Luke 23, verses 28 through 31. And similar submissive sadness comes out in Paul's heart cry about the Jews whose rejection by God he announces. But of them, he says, nonetheless, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off with Christ, cut off from Christ, I'm sorry, for the sake of my brothers. Again, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Those are the opening words of Romans chapters 9 and 10. And I put it to you, friends, that this same traumatic awe or awe-filled trauma, however we're going to express it, must strike the, should strike the soul of every thoughtful Christian. That means you and me. Every thoughtful Christian who has unconverted relatives and friends, as we brood on the certainty that Jesus the Savior will one day return to judge the living and the dead. And surely, we ought boldly to say this, that though this teaching is not in the least comfortable, yet it is healthy for us to feel this trauma and to find ourselves unable like Paul before us, to find relief from the pain except in wholehearted commitment to the ministry of spreading the gospel, in which we become, in which ministry we become all things to all men, that by all means we may save some, and so fulfill Jude's blunt summons to snatch others from the fire and save them. For that, you remember, is how Jude's letter ends. Snatch others from the fire and save them. Jude, verse 23. The only spiritual method of alleviating distress of the prospect of souls being lost is to take action to win them. Action by prayer and action by strategy, tactics. And the theological way of stating that 
is to say that God enables us to live with the prospect of people we know or know of possibly being lost. I say God enables us to live by their pros- with their prospect by moving us to pray and work so that they may not be lost. And indeed, using that prospect in our consciences to stir us up to this mode of action. Hasn't God been doing that in the world missionary movement ever since it began? Yes, he has. And doesn't God do that in your heart and in your life? Surely he does. I put it to you that by New Testament standards, there's something wrong with us if God is not using our disturbing thought of where the unevangelized will end up to stir us in compassion to go and share Christ with them. Well, that, it seems to me, must be our first and major conclusion from this study. The teaching of Jesus about human just destiny is just as as true as it was in the days when the secular culture was not fiercely against it in the way that secular culture is today. So we have to learn to stand against the blunting, numbing effect of our culture. Uh, on our hearts when we contemplate these things and learn to take them seriously even in the year 1991. The essence of the doctrine is that there is retribution. This is a thought that runs all the way through the New Testament. And for those justified by God's grace, The principle of retribution works out to those, says Paul, who by patient obedience and well-doing have sought honor and glory from God, there'll be eternal life. That's the appropriate retribution for them. They have sowed to the Spirit. Now they reap from the Spirit. They reap eternal life. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. The doctrine of justification by faith and acceptance by grace does bring, does lead us on to the doctrine of the new life and the sowing to the Spirit through which the reaping from the Spirit comes. That's retribution. And in the case of those who turn their back on God, alas, so many still do, they have walked away into darkness and for darkness to be their destiny is no more than appropriate just retribution from a holy God. What we're talking about as we discuss this doctrine is the certainty that one's past becomes the decisive factor in determining one's present because one gets what one, one, get, one, gets what one merits. As I said, the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins and justification by faith means that in one very fundamental sense, those who are Christ's will not get what they merit. But do not ask me to believe that someone who has not turned from the old life of darkness to the new life of being light in the Lord, one I mean who hasn't turned a sow to the Spirit henceforth as an expression of honest repentance, is a true believer who could expect new life from God. Forgiveness of sin and the new heart and the new life go together. Persons who lack the latter 
can hardly possess the form. And as I said, and now I say again, in the case of those who deliberately turn their back on God and keep it that way, it is only retribution, it is only appropriate justice. If God should say to them, in effect, as really he does, you chose to be without me, that's what you wanted, that's what you shall have. But to be without me as the source of your life and your light doesn't mean that you are without me in every sense. I will be with you to let you know what I think about the way that you live. And sometimes when conscience speaks in this world, people begin to appreciate something of what that means. I was talking earlier today to my friend Derek Swan, who spoke of the late Professor Finlayson, great Scottish evangelical theologian, who in a sentence well worth remembering, defined heaven as being with God through the mediator, and hell as being with God and having no mediator. So that one knows and for all eternity is unable to forget what God thinks of the way one has lived. Retribution. Justice. This is what we're talking about. There's nothing arbitrary here. This is really the awesomeness of the doctrine. There's nothing here but God giving to people what they have chosen. But in such a way that they discover the true bitterness of their choice when it's too late for any change to be made. Teachers like C.S. Lewis stressed over and over that no one is in hell who has not chosen to be there in the sense of choosing to be self-absorbed and to keep God and his grace at arm's length. Well, I'm not going to pursue that thought any further. I only bring it in here in order to convince us that this is not, uh, what would one call it, sadistic savagery on God's part, as at least one writer to whom I'll refer in a minute is pleased to call it. This is justice. Bible, the Bible presents God as a just creator, a just God who will finally do justice in relation to human destiny. Um, at the last day. But now what I have to bring before you is something which, frankly, I am very sorry to have to mention. For I guess many of you know I am an Anglican, and it's among Anglicans in particular that the trend to which I'm now going to make reference has emerged and gained momentum within the last year or two. I want to train my searchlight on the supposition that the existence of those who leave this world in unbelief will not, after all, be endless, but that one day they will simply cease to be and that will be the end of it. It's a new notion. The mainstream Christian church for 1800 
more than 1,800 years, believed with virtual unanimity that one aspect of the hellishness of hell is its endlessness. And it is the sects, the Seventh-day Adventists and Christadelphians and Jehovah's Witnesses and Herbert W. Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God who have embraced the idea of annihilation, the idea that is that at some point when folk um, at or after leaving this world, those who have rejected God will simply cease to be. But, uh, well, I better had name names having said so much. In recent years, uh, persons who may fairly be called accredited evangelicals of the mainstream have written in favor of extinction. They call it annihilation or conditional immortality. And these writers include, well, here we go, nearly all of them are Anglicans. John Wenham, veteran of the Tyndale Fellowship in Britain's UCCF. Uh, IVF uh, took on the new name, UCCF, uh, 20 years ago. But some of us go back to the days when uh, IVF was the name of the movement. And John Wenham himself does. Veteran then of IVF, let me say it that way. Um, Philip E. Hughes, a senior Anglican Reformed theologian, in his last book, published in 1988, came out for this doctrine. John Stott, one of the best-known and most admired evangelical leaders anywhere in the world, came out for it in the book titled Essentials, published in 1988. This year, my colleague Michael Green, at, um, at, teaches me at Regent College, Vancouver, published a large new book which contained the sentence, uh, I quote it, Christians should reject the doctrine of conscious unending torment for those who have never heard the gospel just as firmly as they reject universalism. You couldn't pitch it much stronger than that. And I could name other names, but that's quite enough, I think. Um, a chairman made reference to the fact that this movement, this uh, theory and uh, the advocacy of it, a relatively new arrival on the evangelical scene is making a good deal of headway these days. Um, and he made reference to Donald McLeod's excellent article in Evangelicals Now, rebutting the thesis, having reviewed it as the coming orthodoxy, perhaps. In 1986, um, Another of my Anglican colleagues, a man named Peter Toon, wrote with reference mainly to Britain and North America, and I quote him now, in conservative circles, there's a seeming reluctance to, to espouse publicly a doctrine of hell, and where it is held, there's a seeming tendency towards a doctrine of hell as annihilation. He went on to speak of, and I quote him again, conditional immortality, which appears to be gaining acceptance in evangelical orthodox circles. Uh, here, at this point, John Stott speaks in a way which I think is very strong. He says, um, the ultimate, I quote him, the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should be accepted as a legitimate, biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment. Well, these are the things that are being said. And we have to ask ourselves what we make of them. Well, the question to raise is the question, are the biblical foundations of conditionalism solid? 
And here I want to begin my analysis by pointing out that uh, the advocates of this view, when they write books expressing it, do appear to be backing into it in horrified recoil from the thought of billions in endless distress, rather than moving into it because the obvious meaning of scripture beckons them. They do use biblical arguments, they get round to that. But are they really solid? Well, let's look at them, you'll see. The biblical arguments that are used reduce to four. First, it is said that the New Testament terms for the fate of the lost, destruction, death, perdition, punishment, the worm and the fire, could mean annihilation. Simply snuffing out of existence. And various exegetical expedients are developed to show this. Now, I can't go into the technical discussion here. I will say, not that these expedients are impossible, though none of them convinces me. I will only say, as emphatically as I can, that none of them is natural. In all the contexts, the natural meaning of the death, destruction, punishment, fire language is entry upon ruin and distress, not entry upon non-existence. Jesus entered into death. He didn't enter into non-existence. And in all Bible study, I urge, it's surely the natural meaning of the passage that should be embraced. Uh, without giving you the small print, I simply say conditionalists' attempts to evade the natural meaning of some dozens of relevant passages um, impress me as a prime case of avalanche dodging. Uh, you can dodge one stone or boulder coming down the mountain. Can you dodge several dozen? Can you dodge several hundred? Can you dodge an avalanche? I think that the conditionalist's way of taking the texts one by one and uh, uh, offering new accounts of what each one means add up to avalanche dodging. That's my first comment. Then second... This one takes a bit of thinking, so uh, I'll, I'll try and say it as say it with clarity, and maybe say it twice in order to show show how the reasoning works. Second point: it is said, it is said, I mean, by the exponents of annihilation, that everlasting retribution would be needless cruelty on God's part, since they say God's justice does not appear to require it. Well, reverence, I think, will leave it to God to know what his justice requires as a means to his own fullest glory, rather than attempting to tell him as if he didn't know. But I would point out that if this argument proves anything, it proves too much. This is what I want you to see. If it is needlessly cruel for God to keep the lost in being after judgment until the moment when he finally snuffs them out. No reason can be given why it's not needlessly cruel for him to keep the lost in the conscious misery of the interim state prior to judgment, which Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus shows that he does, that's Luke 16, and then to raise them bodily in what Jesus calls the resurrection of judgment. What need is there for that? It would be kinder on God's part 
if his justice doesn't require the, the, um, the continued existence of those who've rejected him, it would be kinder on God's part, if kindness is what this is all about, to snuff them out at the moment of death. What God ought to do on conditionalist principles is annihilate unbelievers on death. But as biblical conditionalists have to confess, he doesn't do this. Scripture is too clear on the unhappy state of the rich men in Hades, awaiting resurrection in Jesus' parable. Scripture is too clear on the resurrection for judgment. Scripture is too clear on the fact that he who destroys the person finally in hell is destroying body as well as soul. In other words, it's persons in their resurrection body who are being envisaged. So God does preserve the lost for a period. And so the conditionalist argument boomerangs. The conditionalist argument is intended to show that God doesn't do what, is ne what would be needlessly cruel if he did it. But the biblical conditionalists have to concede that already he's doing what is needlessly cruel on their basis. Can you see that? Here there's a very radical difference between those who reason about God and his ways in terms of an acknowledgement of his justice and the fact that whatever else he does, this holy creator of ours manifests his justice to all eternity. And those who reason about God in a way which leaves the manifesting of justice out of the picture. And I think that I need to expose that radically different way in which the two groups of, uh, two groups of Bible students think about the, the, about the Bible's God. The only way, in fact, to counter the conditionalist thesis that it is needless cruelty on God's part to preserve the lost endlessly is simply to say every moment of the unbeliever's continuance after death in the experience of reaping what he or she has sown and learning the bitterness of the choice that he or she made furthers the glory of God's holy justice, which is what I, for one, do affirm, and I think all Christians ought to affirm. But if that is so, then no reason can be given why the unbeliever's continuance should ever be thought to cease. Particularly when, as I said, when dealing with the first point, the natural implication of the New Testament language is that it does not cease. I hope that was clear. It seems to me it's very fundamental and very important. Uh, the, the, the other two conditionalist Arguments based on scripture can be dismissed quite quickly. Third, they say that the harmony of the new heaven and earth will be marred if somewhere the lost continue to exist in impenitence and distress. But how can they possibly know this? It's pure speculation. And the wise Christian does not base his faith on pure speculation. And fourth, it is said that the joy of heaven will be marred by knowledge that some continue under merited retribution. We cannot take any joy now in the knowledge that there is a hell and some are in it. And so it's assumed. We, shall not, we would not be able to take any joy in that state of affairs if we were in heaven. In other words, the knowledge that 
hell exists and that summer in it would spoil heaven for those who are the, those whom God has brought there. But the answer to that, friends, surely must be, and this is the answer that's been given over and over in Christian history, you cannot say that of God as if the expressing of his, holi of his holiness in retribution hurts him more than it hurts the offenders. And since in heaven, Christians are going to be like God in character, fully like God, that that's the destiny that's appointed for you and me. We should be fully like him so that we love what he loves and take joy in all his self-manifestation, including the manifestation of his justice, just as he himself takes satisfaction in manifesting his justice. There's no reason to suppose that our joy will be impaired in the way that's supposed any more than there's reason to suppose that God's own joy is impaired because he is manifesting his justice in retributive judgment. Again, this is awesome thinking, but I believe it's straight thinking, and I don't believe there's any answer to it, and I do believe that we need to grasp this point and think it through clearly. So where does the matter end? With, the, I believe, with these three conclusions, I believe, and I offer them to you, and then uh, we'll move from monologue to dialogue, for I'm sure that I shall have stirred some of you up to uh, want to ask questions and make points in response to these, uh, yes, awesome and perhaps provocative things that I've been saying. But first of all, let me give you my three conclusions so that you'll see where I come out of the wood in this discussion. Conclusion number one. The biblical foundations of conditionalism are insecure. Conclusion number two. The spiritual consequences of conditionalism are impoverishing. Now, I don't mean by that that everyone who embraces this idea does actually suffer the bad effects of having it in their spiritual system. You know about typhoid Mary, who carried typhoid to many other people without ever getting it herself. And I think there are typhoid Marys out there in this matter of conditionalism. They've taken the idea into their minds, and uh, it's not doing them the damage that one might have expected. And I do want you to hear clearly when I say that, though I mentioned some names, I was certainly not accusing any of those named parties from showing in their own life and ministry the weaknesses that conditionalist teaching is calculated to bring. But for all that, Conditionalist teaching is calculated to bring weaknesses in at least these ways. If nature takes its course and ideas shape the soul, as it's the nature of ideas to do, a conditionalist's thought of God, this is the first point, will miss out on the glory of divine justice. It's a thought which he will not bother his head with because he's concerned about something else. And I believe that that's an impoverishing when in our thoughts about God and his ways and his glory, we don't, allow, we don't bring his justice into the picture. And then second, I think that the conditionalist may be expected to have an idea of worship and a practice of worship that misses out on praise for God's judgments. At the Psalms, 
book of Revelation, do not miss out in praising God for his judgments. Uh, Look, for instance, at your leisure at Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. No, let me actually read them, because this is biblical material that we have to take seriously. This is set before us as part of the story of the triumph of God in these visionary chapters of the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. You see, this is something for which the saints will praise God, that he has vindicated himself and his people by judgment, by retributive judgment, by dealing with those who've opposed him and the saints as they deserve. And it goes on in that same, uh, same vein, verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the, the throne, seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Uh, pray, joining in the praise of God, you see, for his true and just judgments. And then a voice came from the throne, God's own voice, of course, saying, or Christ's voice, I suppose it is, saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. God is to be praised for his justice, but I don't think a conditionalist will ever get around to doing that. And I think that the conditionalist's idea of heaven is likely to miss out on the thought that In heaven, praise for God's judgments goes on. After all, those opening verses of of, uh, Revelation 19 are describing praise offered in heaven. And fourthly, I think that the conditionalist's idea of man, the human individual, will miss out on the awesome dignity, I choose my phrase, the awesome dignity of our having been made to last for eternity, because I believe we have been made to last for eternity, uh, like uh, old-style British manufacturers, we are built to last, and we do last. And this is part of the greatness of the soul, if I may put it uh, in the language of a bygone era. This is one of the facts which imparts tremendous significance, tremendous momentousness to the actual business of daily living. We are, by our daily living, contributing to a destiny which lasts forever. If anybody's life is going finally to be snuffed out, that, to a degree, trivializes the life of that person. If nobody's life is going to be snuffed out, ever, then everybody's personal existence is a matter of enormous importance to them and to their Christian fellows who are called to love them for Jesus' sake. And when I see the dignity of humanity, which our secular culture is undermining so drastically, being further undermined by conditionalist doctrine, which says, well, for the folk who don't believe, it doesn't matter in the end, they'll just cease to be. Uh, It'll be painful getting there, but God is going to snuff them out eventually, so don't worry. Uh, When I say, when I see the 
dignity and the momentousness of human life being snuffed, being diminished by that kind of teaching, I tell you, it distresses me. I hope it distresses you. It's a sort of covert worldliness that's come in, as it seems to me, and I cannot find a good word to say for it. And finally, I think that in the preaching of the gospel, a conditionalist is likely to miss out on telling the unconverted that their prospects without Christ are as bad as they could possibly be. Because, of course, on conditionalist teaching, they aren't. The prospect of an unending eternity of sorrow and distress uh, is a much worse prospect than the prospect of annihilation after judgment. Surely, these are sad losses. Surely, conditionalism is not a health-giving doctrine. It might bring health to the liberals with their sentimental idea of a God who is all kindness and no justice. But it's no help to the understanding and the worship of the God of the Bible, not that I can see. So I'm concerned about the current trend towards conditionalism, and I hope it may soon be reversed. This lecture is a dissuasive from conditionalism. I make no bones about it. I think this is an unhappy development. I hope we shall soon, by the grace of God, see the last of it. And then the third conclusion I want to draw, quickie. Imagining hell is unprofitable. We can't do it. We would be wise not to try. I don't believe that the horrific imaginings of the past really helped anyone to grasp the ghastliness of an eternity in the presence of God without a mediator. Unable to get away from God, unable to forget God, unable to forget one's own folly in setting oneself against God in life and unable to look forward to any better prospect ever than the sadness and sorrow and distress of the present. The people who exercise their imagination in uh, picturing the horrors of hell no doubt made plenty of people's flesh creep. But I don't think that they helped anyone to appreciate the awesome majesty of the God, the Holy Creator, against whom rebellion is such an awful thing. And I believe that in our testimony to God in these days, it's the majesty and justice of the Holy Creator that we do need to project over and over and over again. For the gospel itself will be trivialized if we don't. So, acknowledging the words that theologians use on the basis of Scripture, when they speak of hell, they talk of loss of all good, of all pleasure, of all rest and all hope. They talk of exclusion from God's favor and exposure to his anger. They talk of remorse, frustration, fury, despair, and so on. Acknowledging those notions we should frankly say to ourselves, it is beyond our power, as it were, to cash them, that is, to imagine ourselves experiencing those things and to guess what it will be like. The one certainty is that it will be far worse than anything that we could imagine, which was the real point that Jesus was concerned to make in using 
the imagery of darkness and of fire. It's a nightmare to be in endless darkness. It's a nightmare to think of oneself falling into the fire. That's Jesus' point. This is a prospect so appalling that it's worth any labor, any cost, any effort to avoid it for oneself and to help others to avoid it too. So I invite you as the conclusion of this uh, somber lecture, yes, I know it's been a somber lecture, to school your minds, as I seek to school mine, to dwell on heaven rather than on the other place, except when we are seeking, in Jude's phrase, to snatch others from the fire. Let's get on with evangelism, realizing how important the issues of salvation really are. Let's labor at that point to be wise. Questions? Discussion? Uh, I agreed with the chairman. I will be my own chairman. You make any observations that you wish. Wave your hand. I'll recognize you. That's the way that we put it in North America. It means I point in your direction. And uh, then please say loud and clear, because this is a biggish auditorium, um, say loud and clear so that everyone can hear you uh, what it is that you'd like to say. Um, I am happy to accept any questions and uh, you can react to what I've said to you in any way that you like. But we have these few minutes. If we can use them profitably, let's do it. Yes. Did you all hear that? Was Jonathan Edwards guilty of uh, unprofitable imaginations when he used his uh, imaginative powers to picture the horrific prospects um, that confronted sinners? My answer to you, sir, is that Jonathan Edwards, in all his preaching, and he used to write out his sermons word for word, and we've got them in print, so we know exactly what it was that he said, Jonathan Edwards, in all his preaching, framed everything of this kind in teaching about the holiness and justice of God, the rightness of judgment, the desert of condemnation that um, attaches to those who reject the gospel. And it was, it was only in that frame of reference that he allowed himself the passages where, in effect, he says, imagine this. And then comes a horrific analogy, like Jesus' uh, own use of the image of the fire. And yes, they're there. Uh, in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which sermon he published, we have it. Um, we know what he said, and there are other sermons of the same kind, too. Because he had set these um, imaginative excursions which were not the major part of his sermon ever, uh, within the frame of proclamation of the holiness and justice and judgment and glory of God, I don't believe that they were unprofitable simply because they served only to throw into technicolor what he'd already taught about the glory of God and the sinfulness of sin. They were illustrative uh, episodes only. 
Um, I'm glad that you asked me the question so that I could say that explicitly. Um, and from this, one learns a truth which applies across the board, actually, in Christian communication. Everything you teach to anybody must be framed in terms of the truth, which is focal in the Bible, the truth of a great and glorious God who created and whose cre human creatures fell and who now in breathtaking grace and mercy comes to his creatures not just to condemn them, but to bring them pardon and a new, and, and a new life, new life of restoration to himself. That's the central focus of scripture. That should be the central focus of all our Christian communication on any subject. And one of the things that um, weakens our Christian communication is our bad habit of letting the particular point we're talking about get detached from its frame in the doctrine of God and the pro pro projecting of the reality of God which ought to be there in everything we say about every Christian truth, whatever. But I mustn't take that further. The question allowed me to say that, so I've said it, and I'm glad to have been able to say it. Um, and that's my answer to you, sir, about Jonathan Edwards, and is there anything else that anyone would like to talk about? Yes, sir. Uh, you mentioned how uh, the annihilation teaching affects our evangelism. Could you give us some uh, examples of... Uh of how you think that evangelism is hindered by annihilation teaching, and perhaps some positive ways that uh, the teaching of eternal, eternal punishment can be used? That's a big question. <laughs> and I'm not going to answer it in terms of its range, because that would, that would take me quite a long time. Um, a brief answer, then. I think that uh, if you set a conditionalist and a non-conditionalist side by side to proclaim the urgency here and now of not continuing in rebellion against God but turning in humble repentance to cry for mercy to Christ, uh, if you set them side by side to do it, the man who is uh, driven by a belief in the eternal loss, the eternal punishment, I mean the unending punishment uh, of those who don't turn to Christ, he is likely to be found speaking with more passion, more ang anguish in his heart, more compassion on his lips, more persistence in his persuasion than the other guy, because the other guy is, has embraced a view which really says, bottom line, as they say on my side of the Atlantic, it isn't as bad as all that. It's bad, but it isn't as bad as all that. Perhaps a bit more Olympian, a bit more, I mean, a bit more detached, a bit less involved a bit less compassionate in the way that you invite sinners to Christ because you know that uh, if they don't turn and if they don't turn to him it won't be as bad as all that for them bad though it will be um, that was what I tried to say in, in the lecture really but your question prompts me to say it again 
The flip side, here again I'm talking the North American language, you must allow me to do that. The, the flip side, the other side um, of that same point is one which I think obliges us all to examine ourselves rather seriously. Just for the record, just as a matter of simple truth, most of us don't take our evangelistic calling half as seriously as I think we should. The second great commandment is love your neighbor. Can you honestly say that you love your neighbor if you're not seeking an opportunity and trying to devise means to present the gospel to your neighbor and win him, allure him to faith in Christ? I have met folk from third world churches who seem to see this far more clearly and to be, how can I say it, passionately consumed by it at a far deeper level than we sophisticated Westerners. It doesn't seem to get to us in the way that it gets to some of my friends in China and India and Korea and places like this. I see that there's a brother who I think may come from that part of the world nodding his head very vigorously there. Um, I'm, glad to, I'm glad that uh, someone who comes from the third world should feel it and see it and say it. We've been hardened to a degree, most of us, by the sophistication of our culture in which it's cool not to be too heavily involved in anything. And that has made us the opposite of what the New Testament calls um, uh, single-eyed. Um, simple. Simple and straightforward in our hearts. It isn't cool to be cool about everything. Look at Paul. He wasn't cool in the least. He was passionately involved in evangelism. I become all things to all men, that by all means I may save some. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I, my heart's desire for my fellow Israelites, my prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. I find it in me to wish I was accursed from God if they only could be saved. I feel I could settle for that. It's an extravagant thing to say, but he had the feeling, and that's why he expresses it. He has what they used to call in the old days a passion for souls. Well, we don't hear that phrase very much in the 1990s, and the reason is clear. We haven't got it, so why use the phrase? It would be referring to nothing that's there. Well, I mustn't go on like this. But I, I tell you, friends, I'm distressed about this aspect of it. I think perhaps it's our coolness about evangelism, even though maybe we are, as I would say, right-minded about, about human destiny, um, that makes us feel that, well, does it matter if a person's a conditionalist? It'll just keep them cool in this matter of evangelism as we are cool ourselves. And we don't appreciate just how far we are from what we're called to be. Um, some of you will remember, rejoice in, um, the and you'll have rejoiced in, the ministry of the most passionate preacher I've ever run across, and his name, of course, was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He funneled the whole of his life into his preaching ministry. He, he would say, if asked, well, I, I won't attempt to write. My calling is to preach. And all my life, all my energy, all my thought, all my prayer, as far as ministry goes, will go into that. Well, you have 
I hope, seen the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, which Ian Murray has written, remarkably skillfully, I think. Um, and there uh, it is quoted, I'm sure, from his wife's own lips. Again, something that she has, her widow, his late widow, she is now, he, she said this often, and she was very willing to say it to anyone who talked to her, and did say it to anyone who talked to her about the doctor's ministry. She'd say, you don't understand him. You don't begin to understand him until you realize that first and foremost, he was an evangelist. That's the point I want to make. First and foremost, he was an evangelist. And that's what all that tremendously high-voltage passion of powerful preaching was all about. It was evangelistic. That's how passion ought to rise and fuel our activity um, in the matter of evangelism. I, I mustn't go on like this, but I, I hope the point's clear, and I think, it's part, I think it's part of the answer at deep level to the question that you asked. Okay? <laughs> Uh, well, wait a minute. There's a voice from up there. There's a gentleman who raised his hand down here. Do you mind being number two, sir? I'll call on you in a moment. Number one. Can I take your part, then? Would you agree that part of our problem is because we are cool about sin? He that is forgiven much, loves much. Yes, sir. Amen and amen. Have you all heard it in the back, did you? Uh, if we allow ourselves to be cool about sin... Sure, we shall be cool about everything else in Christianity. And if we allow ourselves to be cool about God, we shall be cool about sin. Okay, sir, up in the gallery, this is the moment for you. Okay. Um, how, I'd like to ask the question, how um, do those who um, believe in annihilation uh, deal with the parable of Dives and Lazarus? Um, and secondly, um, I mean, in your experience, I mean, because you will have um, read much more than I have read, and uh, I'm interested in this as an answer. And secondly, do they not, these people, um, set on one side um, the fact that man has a finite mind, whereas God is infinite? Um, and with Paul, we see through a glass darkly. Uh, and it will be like that, this side of glory. And then we will see all things explained. And is it not this um, need to understand God in everything, this side of glory? Do you, do you understand? Uh, I, I, think, I think I understand the question. Two questions. Double-barreled <laughs> uh, uh, double verbal shotgun aimed in my direction, <laughs> discharged in my direction. Okay, um, let, me, let me speak to both as aspects of what you asked as uh, I understand them. Evangelical conditionalists, who, that is, people who believe the Bible is the word of God and are not prepared, therefore, to jettison any part of Scripture, Say straight away, there can be no doubt because of Scripture's clear statements that uh, the uh, people like the rich man in the parable, that is, um, those who have never given a thought to God in this world, they do continue and continue in conscious distress. 
between the time when they leave this world and Resurrection Day. Uh, they make no bones about that because it's there in the Bible. Uh, and then they also acknowledge that there in the Bible is the bodily resurrection of the unjust, those who rise to the resurrection of condemnation, as Jesus calls it in uh, John 5.30, I think it is. Um, and it's only after the sentence has been pronounced and after the, most conditionists anyway say this, after there has been some experience of um, hell as uh, commonly described as the destiny of the goats going off into the eternal fire, then the completion of eternal punishment is that they are snuffed out and that, say these uh, exegetes, is the punishment that is eternal because uh, it's, the state, it's the, state, the state of affairs that lasts forever. In other words, they cease to be and uh, never come to, never exist in any sense anymore. Uh, as Donald McLeod pointed out in his article in Evangelicals Now, this moment of annihilation is nowhere spoken of in Scripture. And the condition, it isn't. And the conditionalists only get it from um, their avalanche dodging exercise of saying that uh, death and destruction and um, banishment and so on, all those somber scripture words used of uh, not entering into life, they imply annihilation as part of their meaning, which anyone with... Um, well, anyone with the skill to use a Greek dictionary can very soon discover that they don't. So that that line of arguing just runs into the sand, as a matter of fact. But then you are really asking me, as the, if I understand the second half of your question, you're really asking me whether there isn't an element of improper rationalism in what they're doing. Whether they're not, in other words, uh, assuming that... Um, they, as of now, that would mean you and I with them, we are competent to understand everything that God is doing and to assess it. I think the answer has to be, sorry to say this, yes, there is an element of very improper rationalism that has crept in at just that point. And one of the most obvious um, expressions of it is that they assume in argument number four, wasn't it, in my list, that if they were in heaven, um, they would be as distressed at the thought that there were some people, some whom they knew in, uh, in the state of distress, punishment, torment, distress, whatever we're going to call it, um, as they are now. And to say that is to assume, you see, that uh, we now are competent to say what we shall feel like in heaven. But of course we aren't. We now are imperfectly sanctified creatures. Our love of, um, uh, our, love of uh, our fellow human beings isn't all that it ought to be. We don't love God half as much as we should, and we don't love righteousness half as much as we should. But when we get to glory, it will, be, it will involve our transformation into the fullness of Jesus' image. Now, Jesus is the person to whom we should look here. Certainly, he wept over Jerusalem, but he acknowledged that uh, the just, just judgment 
uh, the judgment of God on Jerusalem must be. And uh, it is just beyond the bounds of, bounds of belief that Jesus in heaven uh, is failing to enjoy the joy that was set before him on earth, you know, despite he, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, is now set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's, it's just in, 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 intolerable to suggest that his enjoyment of the joy set before him is currently marred in his glory uh, by the knowledge that there are people in the state of Dives, as at the moment there are, you see, in that state between leaving this world and awaiting the resurrection. No, the Father is going to rejoice in the expression of his justice. The Son, who is appointed the judge of the living and the dead, is going to rejoice in the expression, the actualizing of God's justice in all his acts of judgment, whereby he sentences uh, some to the goats, you see, to eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He will rejoice in that because it's just. Can you, friends, rejoice in the justice of God? The thought that the God of all the earth is doing right, dealing with people finally as they deserve. Um, I believe, you see, that in heaven we shall all of us rejoice in that. In heaven, in other words, this will look rather, this will look and feel rather different to us at this one point from the way that it feels now that we're, uh, while we are imperfectly sanctified beings who don't love God and his justice enough and who have all sorts of, um, uh, all sorts of uh, feelings of rapport with our fellow beings that are really not right at all uh, and which in heaven we won't have. Uh, if anyone wanted to take the heroic way uh, out, out of this situation and dismiss the justice of God from consideration, as I suggested, ultimately, um, the, the conditionalists, uh, to a degree at least, are bound to. Well, then one ought to go back to the apologetic square one in the discussion of this subject and say, do we or don't we believe in a moral universe? where God guarantees that justice will triumph in the end. Do we really want the Hitlers and the Stalins? And uh, I was going to name uh, a living potentate in the Middle East, but perhaps I better not do it. Um, do we really want these folk not before God to have to answer for what they've done? Do we really think it would, that God would be handling his universe better if the Bygones are bygones for everybody. And I think if we ask that question, our sense of justice, imperfectly sanctified though we are, will rise up and say, no, a universe in which moral, um, morality and immorality finally made no difference to anyone would not be a universe for which we could praise God in the way that the universe to which the Bible introduces us in which the judge of all the earth does do right, even though often it's a case of how long, O oh Lord, and we have to wait for that to happen. But uh, that universe is a universe for which we can praise God as the psalmists do, as the, writers, the writer of Revelation does, as I said. Um, I'm sorry, I'd rather gone to town on that one, but I hope I've made the point in a way which gives it some weight. I wanted to. The chairman will eventually come up onto this platform and... Uh -oh.
a self-fulfilling prophecy. Look at it. Uh, and he will tell us that it's quarter past nine and, or some such time and that we ought to close. I will go on answering questions until he taps me on the shoulder and says, sit down, chum, you've done enough damage for one night. Um, are there any more questions that anyone wishes to ask? Time is running out. You, well, wait a minute, this is difficult because two hands went up together. Quick answers. For, oh, your, your eyes are better than mine. I saw two over here, and I'd like to answer them both. And apologies to any other hands, which I didn't see. You, sir, in uh, the second row. Yeah, there. Well, I may share um, a, a problem that, that I sympathize with on the part of those that feel uh, that the conditionalist view is right. When we bring sin down to its most practical expression, and we, we consider the suffering in the world, and, and with all the, the different disasters that have, that have been on the news, uh, it's unspeakably bad, isn't it? I mean, it moves you to the point where you... <laughs> You know, when, when we endeavor and engage in activities ourselves, and it goes so drastically wrong, we feel it's the right thing to do to abort. And when I do consider the suffering in the world, and I know we all as feeling people do, I think to myself, well, there can only be meaning in it if good can come out of it. Yes. And there is that sense, of course, in which uh, God has those plans through it. I mean... Uh, Christ has died. Yeah, yeah. How about, is, is that your point? Well, no, it's just to, to, to say that Christ has died for the sins of the world. We believe that. And uh, we know ourselves as saved and of a reformed persuasion about the irresistibility of grace. And we know in the prison epistles about the uh, references to uh, cosmic reconciliation. Uh, I don't doubt that God's justice has to be expressed in, in the judgment of sin finally, but I understand the position of a person who feels that why did God not exhaust the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work? If, if, if I'm making myself clear. Yes, but you, you are really asking, why did, you're really raising the problem of evil in its basic form. Why did God let things go wrong in his world in the first place? Well, it is, it, is, it is something that can be, it's something that can be discussed. But not now, you see, because time's run out. Um, <laughs> we have to settle for the formula, which goes back to Augustine, and I believe it's, uh, it's, it, it's implicit in Revelation, most certainly, and in other passages of Scripture, too. When we get to heaven and look back on everything that's happened, we shall see that the process of letting things go wrong and then doing redemptively what God did has brought more praise to his name and more joy to the redeemed than the alternative would have done. I can only say that as a formula of faith and invite you to continue with me on the pilgrimage towards the glory where we shall see that it's true. I'm afraid that's the only answer I can give, not only because uh, time's run out, but because that's the only thing I know to say, and I believe it's true. I'm afraid, sir, we're at a disadvantage now. Uh, I think time has gone, and can't you see he's panting? He does want, he does want to close the meeting. Uh, forgive me, I, I, I'll be around for a few minutes uh, afterwards, though there are one or two people here that I want to greet, I hope that nobody is going to engage me in a half-hour theological discussion. But I will be around for a minute or two if there's things that absolutely must be talked out quickly um, before the evening ends. But uh,
Dr. Shaw, come and uh, what was the phrase they used in the uh, Christian Union when I was an undergraduate? Shut us up in prayer. You do that. <laughs> Thank you very much on uh, your behalf to Dr. Packer for his uh, lecture and for his uh, openness to questions afterwards. And if the uh, range of evangelical churches that are represented here this evening uh, could speak and uh, witness with one voice on the issues that have been raised this evening, then it will do great good to the cause of the gospel. Hmm. Good stuff. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.